0: I'm excited to be back in John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning, so you need to be start turning there. In your Bible, John chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 60 through 71. You can find that on page 892 in the Pew Bible. John 6, 60 through 71. We ended the year with John chapter 6, Might have felt like we began last year with John chapter 6. Uh, but we're going to begin this year with John chapter 6. We could stay in John chapter 6 for the whole of this year. And still only be getting started. I won't do that to you. I will bring this to an end uh, this morning. But John 6 is a gold mine. This is one of the, the richest resources that we have on the doctrines of grace, on the person and work of Christ, and on the word that is life. And we have all three of those things before us here again this morning. And so we start again this year with the sovereign grace of God. We start this year again with the glorious and gracious person and work of Christ. And we start this year again with the life-giving Word of God. And then we're going to see, as we come to the end of this passage, we're going to see a great warning of the great danger of rejecting and denying the grace, the Christ, and the Word of God. But, since we learn of the grace of God, and since we discover the Christ of God only in the Word of God... Our focus this morning as we begin this year is again going to be on that precious Word of God because that's what this text is about. John starts this text with one of John's favorite words. In verse 60, where we read, This is a hard saying. Saying, in the Greek, is John's favorite word, which is word. It actually says this is a hard lagos, a hard word. And then twice... John is going to use a second word for word, rhema, and the two are largely synonymous. Verse 63, Jesus is going to say, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then in 68, Peter will say, you have the words of eternal life. So we have hard words that end up actually being life words. Remember, this is the longest chapter of the whole New Testament. Jesus has spoken many words about who he is and what he has come to do. The person and work of Christ. He has spoken many words about how we get and gain him and what he has come to do. The doctrines of the grace of God. And the result of all that, the response to all that, it's rejection and abandonment. As we said last time, John 6 begins with 5,000 men following Jesus and now here it ends with only 11 men following Jesus. As my professor writes in his commentary on John, John chapter 6 ends on a note of failure. John chapter 6 ends with Judas, one of the 12, a devil ready to betray Christ. So we want to sort out why that is. We want to sort out why one of the most beautiful and brilliant revelations of the grace of God and the Christ of God ends with rejection and betrayal. And we want to drive home the point that how you respond to this hard word determines your destiny, your eternity. Everything hinges and hangs upon um, your response to this word. You've heard the saying, they were, they were hanging on his every word, right? You're, you're about to be hanging on my every word for the next couple of minutes, right? Well, your eternity hangs on Christ's every word. Your life literally hangs on his every word. I mean, isn't that the thing that we're all looking for? Right? Life? True life? Real life? Abundant? Fulfilling? Satisfying? Peaceful? Content? Joyful? Life? Life? And ask yourself this morning, as you come into this room, as you begin a new year, are you generally glad? Are you generally satisfied or content? Why or, or, or why not? We're now 16 days into the new year, right? How, how are the resolutions going? Right? What did you resolve, whether unofficially or officially, to do differently this year? To, to change, to improve, uh, to grow? I resolved to stop hurting myself. That was my goal uh, this year, so very. you go. Hurt myself a lot last year. How are those resolutions going so far? Only 16 days in. I don't really do New Year's resolutions, but the problem is not with the desire to change and grow. It's just that resolutions aren't really the way that it works. The desire to change and grow is a good and godly and biblical desire. We are, all of us, longing for change, for transformation, for, for progress, advancement, growth. The problem is we don't really understand how that happens. The problem is that many of our desires... For change are selfish and vain. The end of John chapter 6 can help us with both. It shows us both how growth, how change, how life happens. And it shows us that we should desire what we should desire and pursue. Where the life and the joy is truly found. In the Christ who is the bread of life. Now my goal for the years? I, I want to actually believe that. I actually want to live like I believe that. This year, and I want to actually help you to believe that and live like you do this year. If I I was to have a resolution, if you wanted my resolution for the year, if you insist on calling it that, that would be mine. I want to shepherd better. I want to pastor better. I can somewhat preach and teach. Please don't noticeably indicate your disagreement. Um, But but I've got to learn how to pastor better. That's what I'm praying about and pursuing. This year, That I would actually do you spiritual good, that I would actually help you to grow in godliness and joy in the Lord. And that starts with me first actually being satisfied in and delighted with Christ and then helping you to do the same thing. And that has to start with the word that has to start with this word. And so let's look at John chapter 6, which is another word about that word, which is life. There are four things that I want us to consider as we conclude this bread of life discourse. First, we need to look back and briefly review the hard words of Jesus. Point number one, I want you to see that Jesus has hard words for you this morning. He has hard words for you. But then, number two, we'll see that the hard words of Jesus are actually life. If those words are life, then I want to drive home point number three. Uh, you have nowhere else to go. Do you want to go away? Are you, maybe this morning, are you tempted? Maybe just ever so slightly, are you tempted this morning to turn back? Jesus is going to ask you, well, to whom shall you go? And then we could start the year no better than by being reminded again that whatever happens this year in the big picture and in the small, in the world, and in your life, it happens according to God's will. Because point number four, again, we're going to see in this passage driving home the point that God is sovereign over all of it. And so we're going to close with that reminder. So let's read. Here's the most important part. John chapter 6. Jesus has just revealed himself in great detail as the bread of life. We'll review 22 through 59 after we read, but I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 60. So John chapter 6, verse 60. But you must pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. If you would bow with me, let's, let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that the flesh is of no help at all, for it is the Spirit who gives life. And it is the Spirit of God who gives life through the Word of God. So, Father, I ask now um, that your Spirit would help help me, help the preaching of your Word. I pray that I would be a distraction in no way. I pray that you would remove me out of the way and that your Word would go forth in your power and not in my own. Father, I pray that you would help the hearing of your Word. Father, it is hard to listen and to hear well, so we need your help. Take away all distractions, all other cares that are grabbing for our attention, and fix and focus our minds on Christ. Father, I pray that he would be clear. I pray that he would be glorified. I pray that we would be drawn to Christ this morning. We ask and we pray all this only in his name. Amen. All right, point number one, Jesus has hard words for you. We start with verse 60. Look back back briefly at 59. There we're told that Jesus said these things as he taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. Then in 60, we read, when his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Remember, literally a hard word. Who can listen to it? And so, so what is it? What is this hard word? Well, I think most generally, it's the whole teaching of 22 through 58. I think it's the whole content of what is often called the bread of life discourse or teaching. The big idea is clear but controversial and confrontational. Jesus makes very big claims about himself and very clear claims. Jesus does not leave it to us to decide or determine who he is. That is not an option. He is quite insistent and he is quite repetitive. We saw the big idea in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Big claim. Clear claim. But just to be certain that they got it. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. I just, getting clear, are, you, are you following me? Verse 51. I am the living bread. Alright? It's clear. But what does that mean? What, what is this whole thing really all about? Again, repetition to the rescue again. Verse 27, eternal life. Verse 33, life. Verse 40, eternal life. Verse 47, eternal life. Verse 51, live forever. 54, eternal life. 57, live. 58, live forever. Jesus could not be more clear. He is the bread of life, and life, eternal life, is in some way found in and only through him. What's so controversial about that? What is hard about that word? Well, look at verse 61. Jesus, as God, knows our hearts and minds. He knows what they are thinking. He knows that his disciples, and don't miss that word that it uses, it says his disciples were grumbling. Though, so, side note, uh, beware grumbling Christian. Uh, I wonder if there were some way to measure the amount of our grumbling compared to the amount of our gratitude in twenty. I wonder how we'd fare if there was some way to compare those two things. We are great at grumbling. Not so great at gratitude. Jesus is aware of that grumbling. As he is here of theirs. And look at what he says. Do you take offense at this? Where you read the word offense there, the Greek word is scandalizo. You hear it, right? That's where we get our word scandal or scandalized. They were scandalized by the words of Jesus, it's a, it's a strong word. But again, what is so hard? What is so scandalous about these words? I, mean, I do think they're generally talking about the whole teaching of Jesus in this section when they say this is a hard word. But they're probably also more immediately responding to his words in verses 53 through 58. Remember what Jesus had said about himself in verse 53. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What? That's a little strange. And so we spent a couple weeks looking at how Jesus is employing this graphic metaphor to convey the, the intimate union and communion that we have with him through faith. Eating and drinking, Jesus is receiving and believing Jesus through faith. Again, they didn't, they didn't get that. So this was a hard word for them. But I want to emphasize the hard word that apart from him, apart from faith in him, he says you have no life in you. Jesus has hard words for us about who we are. He has hard words for us about sin. Back in verse 26, he had called out the crowd for not wanting him, not seeking him, but wanting and seeking only what they could get from him. They were seeking not Jesus, they were using Jesus, seeking Jesus as only a means of ultimately seeking self. They didn't want him, they wanted what they could get from him. And so we all of us need to consider, do we really want Christ himself or do we want what we think we can get from Christ? Is it him that we're after or is it self that we're after and he has the means to ultimately get that thing? It can be a very subtle difference. Man in sin, enslaved to sin, as we'll see in 834, does not and cannot want or seek God. Thus man in sin is utterly and entirely separated from the God who is life. And thus is dead, spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So Jesus says, apart from me, you have no life in you. And that's, that's a hard word. I began the year last year stealing a mission statement from evangelist Rico Tice, and I encouraged you to keep it in mind and to live in light of it. And that that mission statement was people without Christ go to hell. People without Christ go to hell. Again, that that's that's a hard word. That is a particularly unpopular word in the world today. And tragically. A particularly unpopular word in many even supposedly evangelical churches today. But Jesus is clear. Apart from me, you have no life in you. Without me, hell. Again, do we believe that? Do we live as if we actually believe that? There is, there is no life apart from Christ. In verse 36, the crowd that has been following in Jesus and listening to Jesus, he specifically says to the crowd, you do not believe you see we seem to want to do everything we can to encourage everyone that they do believe as long as they have some sort of mild interest in jesus jesus seems to do the exact opposite jesus has hard words for us about our sin and about our spiritual condition apart from him jesus also has hard words for us about grace you know we just we don't get grace grace is hard to grasp Note that in one of Jesus' clearest explanations of God's grace, the response is grumbling and rejection. And people continue to grumble and reject the doctrines of grace today. But again, Jesus is very clear. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not all that come to me the Father will give to me, but the Father's actions first. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we saw in our passage, verse 65, we'll come back to this one at the end. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's a hard word. Because of our slavery to sin and our deadness in sin, we are totally hopeless and helpless to do anything to solve our problems. We are incapable of doing or choosing spiritual good, of seeking and pursuing God left to ourselves. Thus, our only hope is him and his grace, his affecting, electing, and ensuring grace, as we saw a few weeks ago. Why don't we like this? Why why are the doctrines of grace so hard for us? It's because we want to be in control. We want to be independent and self-sufficient. Ultimately... Ultimately, we want to be God. And that's the very heart and soul of all of our sin. What's the one thing that Adam and Eve didn't have in the garden? God created them. He loved them. He gave them everything. What's the one thing that they didn't have? They didn't have God's position. That's how Satan tempted them. You will be like God. And that's what we're always and ultimately aiming for and pursuing in our sin. We're always aiming for the removal of God as God and then the enthronement of self as God. But the doctrines of grace reveal to us and remind us that we are not. And that ultimately we are nothing apart from him. We are entirely dependent. We are not in control. We are not self-sufficient. We are not good. We are guilty, vile, helpless we. We are blind, lost, wretches. We are dead. And we do not like that. That is a hard word. And finally, Jesus has hard words for us about his person and work. Hard words about sin, about grace, and about himself. The big idea itself, verse 35, I am the bread of life, is a hard word. 53, again, unless you eat and drink, unless you believe and receive me, you have no life in you. And why is that a hard word? Because Jesus is making an entirely exclusive claim. He is making the claim that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father. No one lives except through him. He himself is claiming that people without him go to hell. And that is a hard word. Go back to verse 62 now. Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't do what I would probably do. Jesus doesn't soften. He doesn't soften the blow. He doesn't qualify. He doesn't backpedal. He doesn't say, no, 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 hold on, hold on. You misunderstood. Let me, let me clarify. Let me explain. No, he doubles down. Verse 62. Are you scandalized? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What does that mean? Well, <laughs> that's a good question, actually. There's a lot of debate about that verse. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's simplest to read it in light of verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus has, says, has said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus again uses that come down language, descent language, in verses 38 and verse 41 as well. Now we see him talking about ascending to where he was before, to where he was back to heaven. What is Jesus saying? Again, you know, it really is a difficult verse. Some think he's referring to the scandal of the cross. right? The, the, the ascending is him being ascended up raised up on the cross. right? How much more scandalized would they be when they see this one who claims to be the Messiah ascended, strung up on a cross? I think it's most likely that what Jesus is doing here is, again, is simply reasserting his claim to deity. Uh, the, the crowd, remember, was grumbling about him in verse 42. They said, hey, we, we know this guy. We know this Jesus. This is, this is the son of of Joseph. He's just some carpenter from Nazareth. We know his father and mother. How can he say that he came down from heaven? How scandalized would they then be were they to see this one that they thought was a mere man, just, just a carpenter, no better, no different than them, now all of a sudden revealed in his ascendant glory, revealed as God himself. I, just, I just think he's saying, If you're offended now, how offended would you be then when you really understand who I am? Either way, the point is that Jesus does not soften the blow. He does not make the hard words easier. And so the question that you should be asking yourself this morning is, what do you find hard about Jesus? Just be honest. Where does Jesus offend you? He offends all of us somewhere. Where does Jesus offend you? If you want things simple, easy, comfortable, and calm, let's just be honest. Uh, Jesus is not for you. He is not your guy. If you want to fit in, if you want to be cool, if you want to be about the same things that the world is about, if you want to enjoy the same things that the world says that we should enjoy, then Jesus is not for you. He's not your guy. This Jesus is hard. He's complicated. He's controversial. He's confrontational. He is not, nor will he be, what we want him to be. He will not conform to our expectations of what he should be like. He is God. We are not. He is holy. We are sinners. He is infinite and eternal. We are finite. And thus, Jesus has and he must have some hard words for every single one of us. What are those hard words for you this morning? Where are you tempted to be scandalized by Jesus? Hard words. But this is actually a good thing because, point number two, Jesus' hard words for you are also life. Let's go back to the text. Let's go back to the word. Look at verse 63. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And focus on those words, spirit, word, life. And note their relationship. They are intimately connected. You cannot have one without the other. They all go together. We're talking about life. We are all living and looking for life, abundant life, satisfying life, contented life, joyful life. That's what everybody wants. Jesus is very graciously and very clearly telling us how that life is found. He's been telling us where it's found, only in him. He is the bread of life. Now he's telling us how it is found, only by the Spirit. We've moved from the second person of the Trinity to the third person of the Trinity. From Son to Spirit. Here's how all comprehensive and necessary God's grace is. Again, God must do it for us. The Spirit must do it for us. Why is that? Because the flesh is no help at all. And why is that? Why is the flesh no help at all? Because of sin. Because our flesh, our self, is still so shot through with sin. That sinful, dead flesh is of no help when it comes to spiritual matters. And spiritual matters are what really matter. This is, this is the same thing that Jesus was just teaching Nicodemus back in chapter 3. I mean, he said, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, like, uh, I know how babies work. That's confusing. Am I supposed to like go back into my mom? And Jesus is like, no, no, you're misunderstanding Physical metaphor to explain a spiritual reality. You must be born from above. Unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We all want life. Verse 63, Jesus could not be more clear. It is the Spirit who gives life. And as D.A. Carson writes on this verse, here is a sharp insistence on the priority of spiritual life? Do we live our lives in light of the priority of eternal spiritual life? This is the life that you need. And yet, this is the life that we pay little attention to. But this is the life that goes on into eternity. This is the life that Jesus is talking about. This is the only life that provides that satisfaction and contentment and joy that we are all of us looking for it is the spirit who gives it okay how he tells us the words that i have spoken to your spirit and life and this is why we are so insistently annoying about the primacy and priority of god's word for your life jesus himself here says that his words are your life he is the bread of life. Verse 53, apart from him, you have no life in you. 63, his words are life. Therefore, apart from his words, you have no life in you. And again, here, again, as a pastor, as your pastor, I find myself somewhat at a loss. We talked about last time about feeding on Christ through faith. And my last point was that we, we feed on Christ by faith through the word, and I made the joke that some of you were probably rolling your eyes and thinking, great, he's going to tell us to read our Bibles more. And I did. And guess what? I'm telling you again. I I was reading a book over vacation that actually complained that the standard application in most evangelical sermons is to read the Bible more. And again, I get it. And In part, I agree. We need to learn to apply better and more diversely. Again, I agree. But... I think there's something else behind that complaint. I, I think there's a general misunderstanding of, uh, of what this book is and, and of what it can do. Jesus says his words, let's be clear, those words are only found in here. They're not found in the book Jesus Calling. Um, that's a middle-aged old lady telling you that she's Jesus. Um, it's not, they're not found there. Jesus' words are only found here. Jesus says in Matthew 4.4 4, that man shall not, that man does not, that you cannot Live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're about to go feed and eat lunch. We're doing the same thing right now. We are feeding by faith on God's word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active. Listen, there are whole movements and denominations in the Christian world that will tell you that there has to be something more. That it can't just be this. That it's not just the word. You may be thinking that there has to be something more, that it cannot just be this, just the word. It's so ordinary. It's just a book. It's just words. There's got to be more to it. But please hear me out. This betrays both a misunderstanding of words in general and the word of God more specifically. remember, the first big thing that we learn about the God who is behind everything, after the fact that he is, the Bible just declares his existence, uh, the second thing that we learn is that he speaks. And it is his speaking. It is his words that are in some unimaginable way the origin of everything. The origin of reality itself. The origin of life. All dependent upon and threaded through with the mighty word of God. See, we live in a worded world. And then God makes us in his image like him and he speaks words to us. God himself communicates to us and in so doing he communes with us. He relates to us and then he gives us the superpower, the magical ability to speak words to one another, to speak to him, to communicate with one another, to communicate with him and in so doing to commune and to relate with one another, and with him. Listen, words are wonders. Words reveal and words relate. Life is entirely dependent on relationship. And relationship is entirely dependent on words. Words, then, are life. Consider how joyful it is to actually get behind the the front and, and to get under the surface and really get to know someone As they finally open up to you and reveal their heart to you through their words. Consider how life-giving and life-saving a timely word of encouragement can be. Do you have any of those in your mind where someone's word to you really just ministered life to you? I've experienced that many times uh, by God's grace. Uh, Preaching is a strange business I love preaching, but it can be challenging, again, especially after the fact. There is great potential for depression and despair. Every, every church member in every church around the world, I'm not just saying this about me, you should always pray for every pastor every Sunday afternoon and Monday uh, after their sermon. Because most, the, most of the time, sermons just end. And that's it. And there's always a voice in the back of your mind asking. You can ask any preacher. You Always asking. What a waste of 25 hours. Wait, what, what did that accomplish? Well, that, that was terrible. And then there's sometimes the actual voice waiting in an email telling you how terrible <laughs> it was. It, it happens. But, but listen, let me here Here's the point of all this, sorry. On a number of occasions, God has ministered much grace to me through a timely text or word from one of you. Right? Simply acknowledging something that you found helpful in the word, simply stating that you were Encouraged, and I, I have one night in my my, my mind just seared in there uh, a few years ago when I had received a pretty devastating Sunday evening email. I've learned to not check email on Sundays since then, but I had received a pretty devastating Sunday evening email about a sermon, which was almost immediately by the grace of God followed up by a short text from Nicole that saved me. Lydia was great at this. Miss Virginia and Roberta are great at this. Karina is great at this. Christy has done this recently. Just words. And there is no such thing as just words. Words are life. Do you have one of those experiences just the life-giving words of someone speaking life into you through those words? Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You have great power. That verse means words. Death and life are in the power of words. So you in church, wield your words wisely. They are powerful. They are capable of great harm and great good, of life and death. Again, I'm trying to start off by convincing you of the importance of words in general, but we're not here talking about our words. We need to better understand the power of our words, but we're talking here about God's word specifically, the living and active, reality-creating and sustaining, life-giving word. Here is where you find life in this word. And listen, this is not a letdown. This is not a disappointment. Because of what words are and because of who God is. And he is the God who speaks. He is the God who works through words. And thus these words are your life. They are your food. Again, not just food in the sense of sustenance, but also in the sense of satisfaction. Food is life and delight, as is God's word. And just as there is basically no hope for your physical health apart from food, you simply cannot be healthy. You cannot live without physical food. There is there's no hope for your spiritual health apart from the word of God. You simply cannot be healthy. You, you cannot spiritually live without the word. I don't really have anything else to offer you. I can do nothing for you apart from that word. I'm not that intelligent. I'm not that creative. I'm not a big picture vision guy. I'm not very organized or administratively minded. All I have for you is Christ. And if I want to actually help you, to actually do you spiritual good, to help you find contentment and joy and peace and life, regardless of your external circumstances, I only have one way to do that. And that is to point you again and again and again to the Christ who is life. And that Christ who is life, I'm telling you, he is only found here. He's not found anywhere else in this word, which is life. You cannot find life apart from Christ, and you cannot find Christ apart from this word. Thus, you cannot find life apart from this word. And heed the words of of Martin Luther here. He says, The soul can do without everything except the word of God, without which none at all of the soul's wants are provided for. Your soul doesn't need Netflix Your soul doesn't need social media. Your soul doesn't need peak physical fitness. Your soul can do without all of those things. It cannot do without one thing. It cannot do without the word of God. And so, tole legge, take up and read. Again, I know that some of you have tried. I know that it can be a struggle. It can be for me, too. But my encouragement to you is keep trying and try harder and look closer. Last time I shared with you Hebrews 2 verse 1 which says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. So our problem is that we often try the word. Remember the illustration from last time. We often try the word as my children try new food. Right? You give it a little little bit of a lick. Like "Ah, I tried it. No you haven't. That's not trying stuff. And we often try the word... Well, uh, when we're already stuffed full of loads of junk food. We have so filled our mind and fixed our hearts on the things of the world that we have little room and little taste for the things of God. Pay much closer attention. Slow down. Meditate on the Word. I would argue that none of us have truly tried the Word and found it wanting. That's actually impossible to do. By the Spirit, for those who are Christ, it's impossible to actually try the Word and find it wanting because it's living in action but that many of us have not yet truly tried the word. Blessed is the man or woman who meditates on God's law day and night. Listen, you will get little out of reading and running. But if these words truly are life, then we are to read them, to think about them, to pray them, to read books about them, to talk about them, to encourage one another with them, to examine ourselves in light of them, and then to do them. Our whole lives revolve around words. Why would we not seek to make our whole lives revolve around the words that are eternal life? What do you give your attention to? What do you give the most time? Be wise. Your attention and your time are your most valuable resources. Use your attention with great intention. J. Packer, in his book on the Puritans, writes this. He says, to the Puritans, the Bible was, in truth, the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and that serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live out and give out its teaching. Church, do you believe that this is your most precious possession? Do you act like it? Do you, do you live like it? Do you use it as if it was your most precious possession? Reverence for God means reverence for God's word. No reverence for God's word just must then mean no reverence for God. One of the best and surest evidences that you love Jesus is that you love his word. If you do not love the word of God, you have little reason to believe that you love the God of the word. How's your relationship with the word? There's there's nothing. That in your prayer life, there's nothing more indicative of your relationship with God. You know how insulting it is and annoying it is when someone ignores your words. Especially when you have something really meaningful and loving to communicate them to them for their good. How insulting is it to ignore their words? How insulting, then, is it to ignore God's word? Every single one of us has room for repentance here. These words, which are often hard words, and we should expect no differently as sinners. Uh, We should expect no differently for something of such eternal value. But these hard words are life words. So hear them. Heed them. Pay much closer attention to them. Jesus has the words of eternal life. But maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you're still struggling with all this. Let's quickly run through point. Number three. let me, let me draw this out and make this clear, <laughs> because you have nowhere else to go. Go back to the text. Skip down to verse 56. 66, we'll come back. Verse 66. What an unexpected ending to this massive and majestic chapter. Christ has revealed himself. He has spoken words, life, come to me, never hunger or thirst, come to me and live forever, come to me and be saved and satisfied. Response, verse 66. Here's one of the greatest revelations of the seriousness of sin, of the wretchedness and selfishness and blindness of sin in the whole of scriptures. After all this, after all those wonderful words, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. And so we've seen a couple of times already that there's a faith in John's gospel that is not really faith. And here we see that there is a disciple in John's gospel that is not really a disciple. There was some sort of interest. There was some sort of attraction. Some sort of following. But then, rejection. Abandonment. There is little more tragic than the line, they no longer walked with him. He who is life and joy and peace. They turn from Jesus, and so then Jesus turns to the twelve. Look at verse 67. First time that they're called the twelve in John 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now remember, this word is, is living and active. This word is not just for them, but it's for all of us. God, in his sovereignty, inspired that you would be, uh, ordained that you would be here on this very morning, hearing this very word. And so he asks you in this moment of your life right now, are you tempted? We would never one of us admit this to each other. But do you want to go away as well? Again, ask the question from earlier What do you find hard about Jesus? Where does Jesus offend you? Where are you tempted to turn back? Maybe it could be his, his teaching on sexuality and, and sex. Maybe it could be his teaching on the sinfulness of homosexuality, on the sinfulness of any sexual behavior outside of the covenant bond of marriage. Man, do you not like that teaching? Do you refuse to hear and heed his, his hard but very clear word to you there? Maybe it could be his teaching on gender, that a man cannot become a woman or a woman cannot become a man. That men and women, this is controversial, but that men and women are actually different. And that that's actually good. Maybe that's offensive and, and controversial to you. Maybe it's his teaching on judgment and hell. Have you ever thought or said, well, my God would never, or, or I could never worship a God who, you know, whatever. Or do you he- refuse to hear and heed his hard But very clear word to you that that apart from him, no one has any life in them. They were scandalized by Jesus' hard words, and they turned back. And so I wonder in a room of of this size, is there anyone in here today who is considering doing the same? And let me warn you, hopefully, graciously, and, and lovingly, you have nowhere else to go. Look at verse 68. He asked the question of the disciples, and Simon Peter answers for them. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, you're here this morning. Maybe you're not so sure about this whole Jesus thing, or you've been trying it, and things have been really, really hard, and you're you're just not sure right now. Okay, but to whom shall you go? Every Christian has moments of doubt and uncertainty. There have been a number of occasions where I have had to step back and consider, like, you know, what if I'm just completely wrong? what what if I just missed it entirely? Do you know what I have found helpful? I found it helpful to consider my alternatives and my options, considering to whom else I may go. if, If not this Jesus, then what? maybe to, to one of the other major world religions. I've considered Buddhism. I've studied it in great detail. I've studied Islam and, and Judaism in fairly good detail. But when you boil them down, they're basically somewhat telling me to do the same thing. They're all basically telling me the things that I can do, the ways that I can establish my own righteousness and and my own goodness. But when I read those things and I read those texts and then I read them in light of my own heart, they leave me in utter despair. They have no answer for the problem of evil out there. They have no answer for the problem of evil in here. I know that I am a great sinner. Nothing can convince me otherwise. I have seen my heart. I have seen the heart of darkness. And those offer me nothing. They offer me no solution to that dark, dead heart. So I know that I, I cannot go there. Do I go to naturalism or to, to humanism or to toward atheism? Same problem. Actually, it's, it's even worse. It provides no answers. It provides me nothing to explain the depths of the evil in the world and in my heart. And it also can't even explain to me the good parts of my life and the great beauty in the world. I cannot abide anything that tells me that what I feel for my daughters is nothing more than my selfish genes firing off chemicals in my brain to make sure that they reproduce themselves. I just think that's utter foolishness. I know that there's something more than that. Naturalism cannot explain to me love and beauty and joy and music and consciousness, how something came from nothing. It offers me nothing. Yes, yeah, so I know that I cannot turn there. Well, so do I then just, do I just go to hedonism? Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Do I just pursue as much pleasure as possible, get, get what I can with the time that I've got? Oh, please, no. I, I, I've, I've tried. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Just look around at our athletes and actors, our celebrities, you know, the ones who have the most seem to be the most miserable. We should be very careful, Christians, about emulating them and desiring them and, and what they have. You know, so I, I, just, I, can, I just look, and I know that I cannot go there. To whom shall I go? And then I turn back to, and I consider Christ. You know, I, I consider his person. I consider his work. I consider his words. And by the grace of God, I can see beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's, there's nothing else that compares to this Christ. There is no one else like this. In the whole of history and in the whole of literature, this is the bread of life. He he is my only hope. He is the only one who can and who has solved my sin and evil problem. And he has done so in the most unexpected and yet the most logically necessary way. He has done so by taking on that sin and evil himself. By God himself coming perfect in purity, holiness and goodness and becoming sin for me. So that in him I might become the righteousness of God so that I might become righteous, so that I might be considered right and good, accepted, loved, and known, and all by grace and grace alone, although I did nothing for it, deserved nothing of it, and yet I get all, I get life, and so by the grace of God, I look at Christ, and I listen to Christ, I see the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, I see the power and the humility, the authority and the love, God and man, and I have to say, oh, He is life. He is Lagos. He is the word that is life, whose words are life. And it is in him and him alone that I will find that life because there's nothing else that compares. And so maybe your 2021 was difficult. Maybe 2020 was difficult too. Maybe the whole thing has been difficult. Maybe what awaits you in 2022 will be just as difficult. But let me ask you, to whom shall you go? You must go somewhere. You must go to something. You are going to or towards someone or something every moment of every day in every thought and in every word and deed. What are your other options? You have nowhere else to go. Christ is life. And you will find that life nowhere else. And then, good news, as we close, sure, maybe things have been hard. Maybe your circumstances have not been what you would have chosen. Maybe they have not been comfortable or easy. But take heart because point number four, God is sovereign. And you can rest in this. You can live your whole life in light of this. Again, look back over the text. Look at verse 64. Why this emphasis on some who would not believe? why mention Jesus' knowledge that one would betray him? Look at verse 70. Why does Jesus respond to Peter's wonderful confession in the way that Jesus does? Jesus' responses are almost never what we would expect him to be. First, he responds in the way that he does to remind Peter of God's sovereign grace. Peter gives this wonderful, brilliant, beautiful answer. Jesus says, did not I choose you, the twelve? And remember, Jesus responds... To Peter's confession in Matthew sixteen seventeen, the same way. Remember, you, you, you're the Christ. Peter gets it. Probably, Peter's probably a p- little prideful. We, we know Peter fairly well. Jesus says, oh, be careful. My father revealed this to you. Right? So it's always grace. It's always God. Jesus is emphasizing that here. But look at what Jesus goes on to say at the end of verse 70. And yet, one of you is a devil. And then look at 71. Here's the last word. Here is the conclusion of the longest chapter of Scripture. The conclusion of the magisterial bread of life discourse. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why is that the last word? Why end like this? Now, I'm stealing this from Piper. Let me be clear. I wish I had read this two months ago when we had started this text. But Piper argues that the whole point of this chapter is to demonstrate to us that whenever it seems like opposition to God is winning, whenever it seems that the world is winning, that Satan is winning, whenever it seems that like everything is against you and is going to overwhelm you and win, what we most need to see and be reminded in those times is, uh, of, is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Over your life, even over evil, even over opposition to him. He's still sovereign over all of it. Now, I don't I entirely agree with Piper that that's the whole point of the chapter. The whole point of the chapter is I'm the bread of life um, and, and here is how you see and receive me. But I absolutely agree with his point in general. Why end with all this rejection of Jesus and with Judas's betrayal of Jesus all in the context of God's grace and sovereignty is to show you that even the rejection, even the betrayal, even the evil, all of it is part of God's plan. And all of it is under God's control. And so that you can then know that whatever your year has been like, whatever is coming, whatever you have faced, whatever you will face, all of it is part of God's plan. And all of it is under his control. So again, yeah, maybe things have been tough. Maybe this year will be tougher. I hope not. But either way, God is sovereign. And either way, he is so good. And thus, this is your only hope. And he has promised to work all things, especially the hard things, together for your good. And we can be glad in that. We can even rejoice in the hard things because we know that he has the words of eternal life. We know that he sees and is working for the bigger picture. Our perspective, I don't know about you, but our perspective is often so small and limited. I know that mine is. This is the end. I haven't been able to run for two months. Life is over. What's the the point? What's the point of life? How stupid, how foolish we often are. But listen, his perspective is never limited. It's never foolish. He knows what matters. He knows that eternity is eternally more important than temporary. And so he is working in this temporary life, often through hard and difficult things, to bring about our perfect joy and satisfaction and life and rest and peace in the life to come. And good news That fact also affects the present. It affects your now. I can begin to find the joy and the satisfaction and the life and the rest and the peace now no matter the circumstances because I know him who is in control of the circumstances and he's demonstrated his goodness to me and so I can trust him even when I don't understand. He has spoken and in his grace by his spirit I have heard. And so I will strive to listen and follow. I will strive uh, to learn and to love and to trust, to live for him because Christ lived and died and rose again for me. Plus, there's, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else. Nothing else will offer you what it is that you are looking for. Only Christ has the life that you need. And so yes, there are very hard words here for all of us. But church, we need those hard words. Plus, these are the words that are also life. Because these reveal to us and communicate to us and mediate to us the one who is life. And who has come to solve our sin and our death problem. And you can trust him. And I guarantee that you will find joy and contentment and peace if by the grace of God you do. And so, listen to him. Pay much closer attention, and you will find satisfaction for your soul. You will experience the change in the life that we all long for. To whom else shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for how kind you are to us, to reveal yourself to us, to speak to us, to reveal ourselves and our sin to us so that we can see Christ and his gracious provision of life for us. Father, my words have been many. Father, I pray now that your word would be what is on our hearts and our mind. I ask that your spirit would take those words and apply them to us. We know that they live and are active already. We pray that you would make us live to those words. We pray that you would help us to see them and savor them and to delight in Christ. Father, we love so many other things, often so much more than Christ. How how foolish, how sinful. Father, show us Christ. Draw our hearts and our minds to him. I pray that we would increasingly find great gladness and great contentment and great joy in Jesus. Father, that can only happen as your spirit works through your word, and I ask that you would do that now. I ask especially for anyone here, in here, who does not yet know you, who is not yet alive. um, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would grant them new life, that you would grant them repentance and faith. Show them Christ. Show him, show them Christ in all his beauty and glory, his goodness and his grace. Father, we ask now that you would do your work, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.